Hear now the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. During these next few months, as we head from the triumphal entry to, uh, to Easter, uh, we're going to be taking large chunks uh, of Luke uh, here. Uh, we have a couple of stories here. Normally, we would take these one at a time. Um, but as we look at them together, we're going to see these large themes in Jesus' life and uh, what we can glean from them and how to apply those to our lives. Uh, so this morning, as we look at these three uh, particular instances in Jesus' life, uh, we're going to see that because Jesus is the humble king. He defends the honor of his Father in heaven, and he loves the lost. And he cares little about his own honor. And that we should, too, defend God's honor and love the lost. Uh, as I was preparing this past week, I came across an article 
Uh, it's about 50 years old in the Chicago Tribune. It was on June 6, uh, 1968. And I want to read part of that article for you. It says this. It says, The significance of Christianity for the modern man will be discussed by an Episcopal bishop and the leader of a Swiss retreat center at 8 o'clock tonight in the Auditorium Theater. The dialogue is under the auspices of Christian Communications, an organization composed in parts of Friends of Libri, the home and headquarters of Reverend Francis A. Schaefer of Valais, Switzerland. The Reverend Mr. Schaefer considers himself a missionary to the skiers and others who visit the small village. I like that wording, considers himself, and whether he was or not, I guess is up for debate, Uh, but we know he was. Uh, Then there was a heading, and the heading was, uh, Spends Time Writing. The missionary's companion in this dialogue will be Bishop James A. Pike of the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. Don't know exactly what that means, uh, but it's out of Santa Barbara, California. A former head of the California Episcopal Diocese, Bishop Pike is now devoting himself to writing and to lecturing. The Reverend Mr. Schaefer, a Presbyterian minister and an American, has become known for his conviction that the Bible must be accepted literally as the inerrant word of God. So it was in the Chicago Tribune. I love this. Um, the next heading, it says, Doubts, Virgin Birth. You won't see a heading like that very often in the Chicago Tribune anymore. Uh, in addition to opposing the so-called fundamentalist connected to the Bible, Bishop Pike has disavowed beliefs in the virgin birth of Jesus and has challenged the traditional formulations of the Incarnation and of the Trinity. And the article goes on to list who will be moderators of the debate and others who uh, made the debate possible. I was fascinated by the fact that this was in the Chicago Tribune, uh, actually in the first section, not on the first page. Uh, buried a little bit deep in it, Um, but talking about things like the inerrancy of Scripture and the virgin birth and the incarnation and the Trinity, like these were commonplace things. Uh, You wouldn't see that very often in our publications anymore. Um, But I was, uh, as I was um, looking through the life of Schaefer, and I've been studying him over the last couple of years, I remembered a debate that he had had with this Bishop Pike. Uh, they, they came together to, to debate uh, various questions of Christianity, whether or not the Bible was true, uh, the virgin birth, and things like that. Things that you would think were staples of Christianity. Uh, but there are those who do not believe these anymore. So not only did Schaefer, through the ministry of Labrie, seek to answer unbelievers' questions, but he also sought to defend the truth of Scripture against this rising tide of liberalism uh, that was uh, coming out uh, of various institutions during this time. So they had this debate. And uh, what impresses me about Schaefer in this instance, uh, and as I read about his life, is not simply the fact that he defends Christianity, but how he went about doing it. We're going to be talking about that this morning. Uh, we're going to get into how he defends Christianity as we look at our passage this morning. So if you remember in the life of Jesus, as we've been going through Luke here, um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it said that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And ever since then, um, Jesus has been preparing 
uh, to face his death, uh, to give up his life in Jerusalem. Uh, recently, we, we read the fact that he walked through Je- the town of Jericho, where he met Zacchaeus. Um, he, uh, he healed the blind man. Uh, he gave a few parables. He has passed through Jericho at this point, and he is on his way to Jerusalem. He's getting close. He has come to Bethany, which is basically a suburb of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. And this is a very famous story in the life of Jesus, the triumphal entry here. So he tells his disciples to go ahead, get a colt of a donkey that's never been ridden. If somebody asks, tell them the Lord needs it. The disciples go, and lo and behold, it's exactly as Jesus describes it. Um, They get the donkey, they bring it back to Jesus, they lay their coats on it, they lift him up, and they place him there on the donkey. They begin to lay their coats on the ground, and as he travels along, they are praising God for the things that they have seen. Over the last three years, Jesus has done amazing and incredible things, and they are praising God for it. And this is the the words that they use. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they echo the words of the angels back in Luke 2 here. They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see these kind of as bookends in Jesus' life. The Pharisees, as they always are, are upset. They are always complaining about the things that Jesus is doing and his disciples as well. And so they tell him to rebuke his disciples, and Jesus' response is incredible. It says, if these guys stay quiet, the very stones are going to cry out. Uh, this is significant in Jesus' life because this is really the first time that Jesus declares publicly who he is, and he allows it to happen. Usually he's really hush-hush. He says, you know, don't tell anybody what you have seen, but now he allows this to happen, and he is declaring himself as king. And as he is traveling down the Mount of Olives, he comes around a bend. I can imagine it in my mind if it was Hollywood. You know, you can imagine the scene where you're coming down this mountain and suddenly the city comes into view. He sees the the buildings of Jerusalem and his heart is heavy. He is broken and he weeps over the city. He is uh, emotionally overwhelmed, and he is desiring that the people would see the things that would bring them peace. And he knows what's going to happen to this city in a few short decades. It's going to be completely destroyed, not one stone upon the other. And his heart is broken. First thing that Jesus does when he gets down the mountain, uh, he goes into the temple. And this is a a story that seems uncharacteristic of Jesus. He comes down the mountain. He goes into the temple. He sees things that are very frustrating to him. He sees money changers. He sees people selling animals. They're clogging up the outer court of the temple, not allowing people to get in. Uh, This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place where those who are non-Jews are allowed to be. And instead of them being able to come in, There's these people who are buying and selling and trading money. Uh, They're doing a service, but they're doing it in the wrong place. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives them out. Uh, As it says in Psalm 69.9, it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, 
And you see it here as he cleanses the temple. And as he does it, Jesus quotes scripture. He, he says that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And not only does he drive the people out, but what he does is that he sets up camp there. And during this whole week, this last week of his life, what he does is that he teaches daily in the temple. And the people there are so enamored by what he is teaching that the Bible says that they're just hanging on his very word. And the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the principal men of the people, they would like nothing more than for Jesus to simply go away. They are sick and tired of this Jesus. So what do these series of events mean? What do we, or what can we glean from them? Uh, these, uh, these things that are going on in Jesus' life. Well, what we see is this, as I mentioned at the beginning. What we see is that Jesus cares more about the honor of God his Father, and he cares more about others, in particular those who are lost, than he does about promoting his own self. So let's talk about how Jesus does not care about promoting his own self. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem as the king, and he declares himself as the humble king. Now, most kings, when they would ride into the city that would be theirs, their capital, uh, they would ride in on a war horse, usually with their sword brandishing, uh, with all the pomp and circumstance uh, of coming back from battle, Um, But what Jesus does is that he rides in on a donkey, on a very humble, uh, the beast of burden. And he does so as he is riding into the city, he is weeping over it. So you can imagine the humility uh, that comes with this. And I don't know what the end of that procession looked like. Uh, We aren't told exactly what happened. Uh, At what point does Jesus get off the donkey? At what point do people stop yelling? But it seems kind of anticlimactic. Uh, you would expect in a procession like this, uh, maybe people coming back from war, uh, the king leading them, that it would end you know, in this arena with this great speech. Um, if you've seen the movie The Hunger Games, when people come into that arena, and it is just an incredible spectacle. Uh, you expect him to, to give a rally cry, uh, to, to give this great speech, or even to have a coronation ceremony. But that's not what we have here. Jesus simply dismounts from the donkey. The shouts, the cries of Hosanna, of here is our king. Uh, They eventually peter out. The crowd disperses and everyone goes home. That's the end of the triumphal entry. Because Jesus isn't there to be crowned as the king. Jesus is the king. And he has come to declare himself as such, but he has come to give his life for his people. He didn't come to be crowned. He came to die. And he came to submit himself to his Father's will. So Jesus is a humble king. Second, we see God's, uh, Jesus' love for others as well in this passage. We see it as he weeps For the people of Jerusalem. And Jesus is just overcome with emotion. 
Now, as someone who can occasionally get a little overcome with emotion, um, I understand what he's going through at this point. The tears just start to flow as he sees the city of David, Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen to it. Not only that, he knows these people and that they are spiritually blind, that even though their king is coming to them, they do not see it. And instead, they're going to turn on him in a matter of days. And instead of seeing, blessed is the king, they're going to say, crucify him. And it breaks his heart. Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says this, As I, do, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, and why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the passion that's inside of Jesus that just causes him to weep for these people who are lost, who refuse to see Jesus for who he is. And we also see his love for others in the cleansing of the temple. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the part that he cleanses is called the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where the people who are non-Jews were allowed to go. These were the people who were seeking God and who he was uh, were allowed to come to the temple. But because this space was being consumed by those who were buying and selling, the people who were honestly seeking God could not find him uh, because they were being kept out. And when Jesus says that the temple is to be a house of prayer, uh, what he's saying is that this should be a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read the context here for us. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus isn't the Savior of just the Jews only, he is the Savior of all men, Jews and Gentiles alike. And we should have great joy in this because that is us. We are the Gentiles. And so when Jesus was cleansing the temple, he was thinking of people like us, honestly seeking after God. So Jesus clearly had a deep concern for others who were earnestly seeking the Lord. So not only does Jesus show this humility as a king, not only does he show this love for others, but he also shows this passion for the honor of his Father in heaven. So in driving out the people who are buying and selling, Jesus is clearly defending the honor of God, his Father. This is his Father's house. Even when he was 12 years old, he knew that to be the case. And he said, didn't you know that I would be in my Father's house. If people are not treating God's house with respect, doing the things that God does not appreciate, then he is going to defend God's honor. 
And not only does he drive the people out, but then he proceeds to teach daily in the temple courts. This is what should be happening in the courts of God's temple. So, through these three events in Jesus' life, we can clearly see that Jesus cares more about the honor of God his Father. He cares more about others, in particular those who are lost, than he does about his own self. So based on these things that we see in the life of Jesus, how does that translate to our lives? How are we supposed to apply these truths that Jesus displays for us? Are we to be like Jesus and go into places and start flipping over tables and driving people out? Is that uh, our calling? Um, The reason that I brought up this debate that Schaefer had with Bishop Pike is because I feel like the way that he handles things like this is what we should be doing as Christians as well. Uh, I can't tell you who won the debate. Um, I'm not sure of that. I'm sure it's, it's like uh, debates that we've been seeing on TV recently. I'm sure one person would say one thing and another another. Um, Bishop Pike may have not have been convinced by Schaefer and his intellectual arguments, but Pike was convinced of one thing through these debates. And he was convinced of the love that Schaefer had in his heart for the Lord and for Pike himself. Jerem Bars, who uh, worked at Labrie for several years, who's now a professor at Covenant uh, Covenant Seminary up in St. Louis, uh, he says this about Schaefer, this sense of dignity of every human person and his compassion for people in their lost state, arising from his profoundly biblical approach, also brought Schaefer to desire to avoid aggressive confrontation with believers. His refusal to debate with anyone, including the radical liberal like Bishop Pike, was an example of this. And they have debate in quotes there. Uh, We call it a debate, but Schaefer didn't want to call it a debate. Um, He insisted that his meeting with Pike should be called a dialogue. And as a consequence of this, they became friends and corresponded with each other until Pike's death. And Pike died actually a few years later. Um, Frankie, who was Francis' son, later said this. He said, Dad's sensitivity was disarming. Bishop Pike, the famous self-proclaimed liberal minister and writer, told me that my father was one of the most compassionate men that he had ever debated. So if you understand what is going on in this debate here, these are two men who are claimed to be Christians, but they could not be more diametrically opposed to each other. Bishop Pike didn't believe in the Trinity, the virgin birth, the incarnation, um, the inerrancy of the Bible. In a sense, what do you believe as a Christian if you don't believe in those things? Um, But Schaefer, in this debate, he didn't seek to destroy Pike. What he wanted to do was to love Bishop Pike and to show him the humble love of Christ. So if we're called to be like Christ as believers, and I believe that we are, then we are to imitate Christ. We are to imitate his humility, imitate his meekness that we see in this triumphal entry. And we should show love to God and love to others as Jesus displays as he weeps for Jerusalem and as he cleanses the temple. So Jesus comes in. He comes in so sweetly. 
so humbly riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, overcome with emotion. It's almost a surreal scene. But then suddenly he gets off the donkey and he's flipping over tables and he's driving people out. So what's going on here? Why, why does it seem like there's this 180 degree turn? Are we supposed to be like the humble Jesus? Are we supposed to be like the Jesus that takes action? Well, the answer is yes. It's not an either or, it's a both and in the life of Jesus. So in in Jesus' hierarchy, in his priorities in his life, God and others came first, and himself, he came last. And we should have the same priorities that Jesus did as well. And these priorities should display themselves through humility and through meekness. Uh, Jesus never set aside that humility, never set aside that meekness when he entered the uh, the temple and started flipping over tables and driving people out. Because I think what we often do is that we confuse meekness with weakness. And they are not the same thing. In fact, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength that is under control. Meekness is having the, uh, the strength not to defend yourself when you have the power to do so. But it's boldly coming to the defense of God and his name and to others. We see this in the life of Christ. We see this in the life of Schaefer as well. Uh, Schaefer didn't shy away from engaging others in arguments, those who would uh, disavow the Bible, who wouldn't believe in the Trinity, He was willing to engage in debate with them. But his his concern wasn't always for himself. His concern was for the glory of God and for the love of other people. So I I give Schaefer a lot of credit for showing up and for debating those the likes of Bishop Pike. Defending the truth, defending scripture, defending God's name. Because I'll be honest, I often shy away from things like that. Uh, Schaefer showed courage in a place where I am often the coward. And I don't believe that I am alone in that. I believe that it's typical of most Christians today. Now, we don't encounter the same situations as Jesus does in the temple, uh, where we have this physical interaction. Uh, We don't, uh, as Jesus did with the physical temple, with the money changers, with the merchants. But what we do is that we stand by as the merchants and the money changers in our culture have taken over our temple. That God's name and God's honor are being attacked and we sit on our hands rather than rising up in his defense. And I'm not talking about on a national level here. I'm talking personally. Not all of us are county clerks in Kentucky uh, who draw national attention for refusing to authorize what we believe is contrary to Scripture. Uh, Not all of us are given opportunities like that. I'm talking on a personal level. I'm talking in our conversations and in our interactions with others. At work, in the store, on social media. How do we react when the truth of Scripture is being denied? What do we do? What do we say when God's honor is being compromised? Do we stand in God's defense or do we just let it slide? Do we take a step of faith and speak up? Or 
do we simply let it go? Now, obviously, God does not need us to defend himself. God does a very good job of defending his own self and defending his honor. But I believe that there are two simple reasons why we don't stand up in defense of our Lord and Savior Jesus. One, he doesn't mean that much to us. And two, we're too concerned about our own reputation. I think that we care too little about God and about his honor and that we care too much about self. In other words, our reputation is more precious to us than God's reputation. Now, I know that there are others who love the confrontation, and people like you amaze me, because that is not me. People like, uh, who are willing to stand up, um, but as you do that, you need to honestly answer this question. As you do that, do you actually care for the person that you are debating? Or are you simply looking for a way to prove yourself right? Are you looking for a way to embarrass the other person, to make them look foolish so that you can come out looking good? Uh, This is how another person, Bruce Little, uh, describes Schaefer's approach. He said, people more than methods were important to Schaefer. And at the end of the day, ideas were more weightier than programs. For Schaefer, Schaefer, apologetics was not an intellectual game to see who could come out on top. It was a serious and compassionate intellectual engagement with people regarding the matter of truth and error, because not only truth matters, but people matter. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he did it for people so that people could have access to God, so that those who were foreigners could come and honestly seek God. It was an act of compassion. And this is what I feel like God is calling us to this morning. So in conclusion, I feel like God is calling us this morning, not only in Uh, This morning, not only in 2016, but in our lives as Christians, God is calling us to show up in courage. In our culture that is now described as post-Christian, we are going to be given more and more opportunities to stand for the truth that we believe. It's going to become more and more uncommon for people to be known as standing up for the, the Bible, believing that it is inerrant. It takes courage to disagree with another person and to present a biblical worldview, especially if we're going to be ridiculed for it. It takes courage to speak the name of Christ to others, to love those who are lost, and to love those who are seeking Christ. Because love involves risk, because there's always the possibility of rejection. And we know that rejection is tough. So in order to speak the truth, we need to know the truth. And I believe that God is calling us to love others through this process, resisting all temptation to defend self, instead to be humble and to be meek. And this is where the Lord's Supper bursts onto the scene. This uh, this morning, we're going to be celebrating what Jesus has done for us in the supper. It has a very deep and a beautiful meaning 
in our lives. Scripture is for us to see the example of Jesus. But it's not only for us to say, well, that's what Jesus did, and so I'm going to do the same thing. No, Scripture is also for us to see what Jesus did and to humble ourselves before Him. And in Jesus, we have this good news of what He has done for us. You know, we don't have to worry about defending ourselves and our reputation because of the good news of the gospel. We don't have to worry about defending ourselves because of the reputation that we have before our God and Father, Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about what people are going to say about us because through the good news of the gospel, through Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, we have been justified before God. And we know that we are loved by God our Father. As it says in Romans chapter 8, What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ's crucified body and his shed blood, this is the love of God that we know and that we experience. And as we come to the table this morning, let us come knowing the love that God has for us. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our humble King, who cares so much for the honor of your name and for those who are lost. And we know this because he cares for us, because we know that we were once lost before we were found in him. Lord, we know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because Christ has died for us, we know that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we come to the table this morning, I pray that we would know and experience this love this love that sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. As we partake of this meal, Lord, remind us of the great love that you have for us. And we pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.